All right. Welcome, welcome. Can anyone tell me what piece of Torah we are studying this morning? Yes. Well, who cuts eyes? 27.1 yes. through 27.34. That's right. The last chapter of the book of Leviticus. So there's a few things. First of all, I want to put on all of your radars. We're going to have to end this study with some very powerful words as we transition from one book to the next because it's the end of Leviticus. And the other piece is that in your guys' lovely triennial challenging style, we are beholden to that last chapter of the book of Leviticus. And it's wildly different from how we begin our book. And so what I want to do is I want to do a few things. One, I want us to look at the beginning of this chapter. So who thinks they can read for me? If anyone has it up, if not, I'm happy to read it. The first few verses of chapter 27 of Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when anyone explicitly vows to the Lord the equivalent of, for a human being, the following scale shall apply. If it's a male from 20 to 60 years of age, the equivalent of 50 shekels of silver by the sanctuary weight. If it's a female, the equivalent of 30 shekels. If the age is from five years to 20 years, the equivalent is 20 shekels for a male, 10 shekels for a female. If the age is from one month to five years, the equivalent for a male is five shekels of silver. The equivalent for a female is three shekels of silver. If the age is 60 years or over, the equivalent is 15 shekels in the case of a male and 10 shekels for a female. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Now this goes on and on. Perfect reading. Oh, Let's okay. go there. Nice job. But this goes on and on to go over these different rules and equivalents of the value of a vow. So let's start here. What is a vow? Like in this case, what what is a vow? A promise, okay? Okay, keeping your word. What else? Agreement. It's a vow to, in this case, a vow to God, it's a vow to not, God. not so just to what, another person. What is a vow to God? What does that mean? I know what a promise means to another person, but let's start with the most basic so we know why we're diving into this text. What does it mean to take a vow to God? It's especially powerful. Okay. And why is it especially powerful to vow to God? Because it's God. Okay. I'm hearing a lot of similar words here. Vow, promise, powerful, God. A sanction, a God who sanctions with uh, curses and good things. Ah, so a God who in this moment has already proven God's power by these curses and blessings and, and all of that. All right. As I used to say to my children, because I said so. Okay, the God of because I said so. That's Is fair. it a pledge of obedience? A pledge of obedience. Okay. These are all very fair. Any other thoughts? It's personal. Okay. That's an interesting, different perspective, Margot. I really like that piece of it's personal because one of the things that I find a little bit troubling when we first go into this text is that promises you make to other people, you get the gift of interaction. You know from the emotional interaction, from the promise, from the trust that you have with another person, and you can feel the difference in keeping that promise. But to God, the challenge is you have to simultaneously know God as this infinitely powerful, all-present being, and also with one direction, 
You don't necessarily get to feel the effect back. You have to take faith to access that feeling. So what does that mean when it comes to vow in the first place? And even further, I ask, what is this idea of a vow equivalent to a human being? What does that mean to, to, to add a valuation to the cost of a life? That seems inherently the opposite of what we know Judaism to be. So what does it mean to create a system in which we have to do a vow for the, for the value of a human life? To the giver of life. Okay. Beautiful. Giving a vow to the giver of life. So there's this commentary from Ibn Ezra. And Ibn Ezra says, a vow of persons. What this really means is he is taking a vow saying, if God will do for me, then I will redeem my life in accordance with its values or the value of my son's life or of the life of my animal or whatever it might be. So it's really first and foremost, again, a moment of economic justice in our tradition, saying you don't necessarily have to have the tangible means to give of a vow. You can access the emotional value of a life and say that if you do these things, I will pledge my life or my son's life or whatnot to you. And the kaf or beracha, according to this evaluation, is accordingly that all the grammarians that look at this text in 27, they find it superfluous. However, there is one who says that this kaf that is used is directed to the kohen, that most of this is really coming back to the kohen. He explains that the priest is the one that does the evaluation. Now, this text goes on from life to animal to property, and I can't help but thinking what kind of reality TV show of the priests walking around giving valuations to each home would look like. Because again, are the priests experts at valuation? Is it is this a penalty? I'm still trying to understand what the shekels are here. Okay, <laughs> so we'll get we'll get there in just a moment about what the the what the dollar amount, what the shekel amount actually well, goes. I mean, is to. this if you break the vow, you have to pay this? Or is this what you have to pay to get out of the vow? Any thoughts? No, I think it's when you you make the vow, you have to pay. Okay, go on. Can you give us an example of a vow that one would make in this context? Just an example, a vow to God. What type of vow would that be? So in the case, there's a classic story of uh, Samson. Right in the classic story of Samson, who never cuts his hair. Samson is a is a Nazarite, and this comes because his mother is praying and says, "I I want to be pregnant so badly. Please, if you give me a child, I will give my child to your service." Meaning that Samson was her son, but her son's life was to be dedicated to the temple, to God. And so that's that's an example of where this ends up going. That, of course, happens in later books. That is not what happens in our earliest piece of text with Torah. Other pieces are people who, at this time, it's not necessarily that we're considering luck. We're considering that as we want to move through life, if we want something to go differently, we ask that God help us get there. And it's almost a trade of value. But going back to your question, is this about breaking your vow? No, this is about the value of taking the vow. 
which goes back to the priest's assessment. But I mean, what function does the value have? So somebody says, okay, it's a 10 shekel vow or a 25 shekel vow. I'm still not understanding what that means. That when would they be paying that vow? Well, do they pay it or is it just, is it just an indication that things are different depending on what your age is? Or does this have to do with practices of other peoples at that time? So the way in which this text has always been understood to me is that this has to do with the valuation when the vow is to come, right? So she becomes pregnant. She, she promises her son. Her son becomes a Nazarite. Why? Because that was the promise. That was the vow that was made. The difference being here, and we'll, we'll really dive in deeper to it. Can you give your home up? Can you give up your only livestock? Or more importantly, can you really give up a, 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 the life of someone in your family? And, and the answer is no. And so if you can't do that, if you can't live without a home, then instead, if you're going to vow your home, they need to be a fair evaluation to it so that if this comes to fruition, that you're not without a home. I see here, why is one person's vow worth more than another person's depending on sex and age? And there, Susan, is where we get into the next set of conundrum that I do think is worth looking at. Who, just by show of hands, is a little uncomfortable with the fact that we have eight verses valuing different people at different amounts? Especially when, if you go forward to next week's portion, we have the census that's going to be taken. And I know I'm teaching next week too, so I'm taking away my own material. But the census is going to be taken. And one of the brilliant things about the census is that as a people, everyone is counted. There are other traditions in which only the lower socioeconomic classes are counted because the counting is about being a uh, warrior, being able to be counted in the army. And if you do that, if you only take the lower socioeconomic class, now you have different valuations. And so our tradition very proudly says that every male is to be counted for the military. And yet here, one chapter earlier, we see blatant valuation differential between ages and gender. Uh, yes, David. Daniel, it's almost um, to me... Um, recognizing that Leviticus is authored by the priestly group, this may sound terribly harsh, but it seems that this is auctioning off favors, which, of course, carries over into Christianity and Catholicism and being able to buy your way into um, blessings uh, I realize that this is a harsh view, but why is it so transactional? I, I just simply don't understand it. Particularly, I can understand if you're taking a vow to another person, you're saying, if you do this, I'll do that. But if you're doing a vow to God, there's no real transaction. You're saying, God, I have faith in you, and um, there's nothing really that I don't know how you value something like that. I guess it really is troublesome to me. It just seems so mercenary that priests would get their hands in this. And that's honestly what it feels like. Good. I don't know any other way to say it. Yeah, I'm horribly uncomfortable with this piece. 
I am terribly uncomfortable with the notion that we are actually putting a dollar amount towards a, a person's vow. I, I'm, I, I'm uncomfortable with that notion altogether. And I actually, Well, at least I'm not alone. You are not alone. It is a true piece of this that it is uncomfortable, especially there's 34 verses in this chapter. We couldn't get to the value of people later. They couldn't have given us a warm up with the livestock and the houses and these other things that we're more inclined to put up as collateral. But instead, we start with the value of a life and it doesn't sit well with the other things that we may have learned in our tradition. And so we have to stop again and say, why would we do that? Is this typical of the priestly class that authored this section, do you think? Well, let's go back into that question again. What are the priests experts in? (laughs) Their purity, not the temple, our tradition. They're not home assessors. They're not medical professionals. They're not trainers. They're not even veterinarians. So how are they given so much power to even have the power of valuation of the cost of these things? But don't we in other situations, haven't we already encountered situations in which values are placed on uh, recompense for various types of injuries? Very much so. And and so there is valuation. There is valuation on the cost of an arm. There is a valuation on the cost of of a life. If there's a murder, correct, right? So there is. So the the concept of valuation in it in and of itself, there's nothing reprehensible about it. No. So so let's let's make sure we see the distinction between these two. In the moment in which we have cast a valuation for, let's say, uh, in the case of manslaughter or murder, or even quite frankly, like if one's donkey is accidentally killed, replacing the cost of the donkey, or quite frankly, the classic line which you have heard of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Judaism never said poke an eye out. As soon as they could, the rabbis say, actually, here's the cost of an eye. Here is the um, unfolded cost of what that would be, uh, projected over 10 years, whatever it might be. Those things are all to make sure and to protect life. Because if you didn't have a valuation for how much an injury would cost or a murder would cost, then vengeance would be the only transaction. And that would actually make us less protected as a society if we said someone does it to you, what's fair, do it to them. And so we actually go far in to protect the sanctity of life. We say this is the valuation of that. And I know it seems backwards or strange to an extent, but that's really where it comes from of giving those valuations. The reason I think this is different is, again, why I asked you what a vow is. You have not been wronged. There is not that same level of uh, direct response. It's a vow is a promise. It's a you know projection of hope. It's to see if one can change their like life and its trajectory, and yet the people who should be there to facilitate the experience somehow now have to also facilitate it based on a valuation. Why are these different ages worth different? Why do you think, and let's read it again, why do we think that 
if a male from 20 to 60 years is worth 50 shekel. If a female, they're worth 30, we can put that piece aside for a minute. We know there's some sexist, uh, I will say more than undertones of our text. If the age is from five to 20, they're worth 20 shekels and 10. Why 50 to 20? And I can repeat Daniel, Daniel, it's the priest saying this is ability to pay. This is just a commercial transaction. And frankly, it stinks. It's Okay. Uh, okay. So it stinks. I'll take that as one answer. It's not merely ability to pay. It's the, the males who are between 20 and 60 were precisely the only ones who would be defending the community in case of war. But here's my question. Are we missing a projection here? If you are going to value someone 5 to 20 as less than someone 20 to 60, aren't you only really encouraging the offering up of those who are going to be your future protection? Isn't there a logical issue? If we're going to go just on logic, and by the way, we're not going to stay just on logic because that doesn't feel right to me in this space. But right now, let's play the logical, uh, let's take the logical road. Why would a child be valued less when if you just wait, they're going to be that position? Doesn't it seem like you're potentially risking your resources that you're going to need for the longevity of your people? It seems to me there are remnants of this same process in our Judaism today. The Penyan Habin that is... Haben, yeah. Yeah, Haben that is given for male children. And also, I see it in the um, pledges that are made to synagogues with promise of names going on walls. Okay, tell me more about that. I think we're making a deal that if we give money for a child's soul so that it may live, uh, pledging that we will give the child an education, we're paying for that with the Penyon Haben. And if we give enough money to have our name on the front of a synagogue or on a room in a synagogue or whatever, we're making it known that we have pledged a certain amount of money for the good of the community. But it's still money for something. So I want to be a little careful. I don't disagree that there is a transactional space to that. But I'm also a firm believer that there is a spiritually moving. And so I really believe that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual act to donate to an institution that you believe in its, its ripple effect and its voice. So I'm not sure that I want to see it in that same level of transaction. Donation tied to having your name on a certain wall. Uh, like, the spe- like the stipulations. Yes, the stipulations that go with it are not the donation. Okay. But to quote Rabbi Rubin in the past, the purpose, the purpose of the name is, I mean, although some people take it for their own ego, the real purpose of it is to show people that the institution didn't come from heaven, but was built by people, built by real human beings. Or in the case of a family, so that other family members can connect with that. Well, I, you know, just because there are people who take it the wrong way does not necessarily mean it shouldn't be. It's a but big, that's a whole other discussion. It's, it's, it's a big conundrum, and this is my favorite part about Torah study is you don't know what road you're going to go down. It's a big conundrum in the, in the world of, of development and, and help of nonprofits because 
namings actually statistically promote more giving because other people are moved by seeing a name they recognize. Even though, if we really want to get back into it, Maimonides' ladder would say to be anonymous. And yet, if Maimonides' ladder could go back and reflect to the notion that we would maybe get less giving and less support of the institution if we remain anonymous, would that rule still stand? Who knows? And that's what goes back to these questions right now. I'm not taking the Torah. I'm not angry with the Torah for these evaluations. I'm just not sure they're right. Well, if this is about gifts to the sanctuary, if that's what this is about, which the Red Book here says that it is pledging to the sanctuary, then this is really about supporting the people who don't have any land, who are the priests and the Levites, and supporting the institution and... It's kind of like a vow tax. You want to make a vow, you want to make a vow, make a contribution, maybe it'll help. Well, and this is where we come into part of the problem. I don't want to just see Leviticus as a book of the priest pushing an agenda. I, I, I actually, I don't see it that way. I see little flares of it maybe in moments, but that's not the way I see Leviticus. However, next week again, when they take the census, the Levites don't get choice. They're the group with no choice. Everyone else gets choice. Tell us what you're passionate about. Tell us what you can do. But the Levites, no dice. You have a job already. I don't want to hear it. And so there is a little bit of like making sure that this group also has resource. And so there is a little bit of that transactional value. But let's say we can get past the transactional value piece. Why do we have different numbers? Is there some information based on the history or other scholarship as to why uh, these were the numbers that they chose that they that are in that are in the Torah, not necessarily what we might feel to be uh, uh, what they reflect? We have evidence again as we look comparing to different traditions and different peoples at that time. We have evidence of things like. As we read in the Holiness Code, we don't sacrifice our children. That line really lands differently. We don't sacrifice our children. In fact, if I'm being perfectly honest, as I was preparing this study, I first prepared on Tuesday, Monday. I prepared the day before Rob Elementary School was utterly shattered. And I had to throw away half of my thoughts. And as I sat down to rethink about some of it, my children were sprinting around me. This, And the first thing I thought is they are not giving enough value to a young child because I would pay double to get them to be quiet in this moment, right? Like my first thought was it is sometimes more burdensome to have someone of a young age. You don't know their potential. You don't know their future. There should be all kinds of reasons that it's worth more. And then, and then it just sunk in that I don't like this chapter this year. It doesn't mean I don't find beauty in it, and it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of lessons to be learned here, but I have a really big problem, especially in this moment in time, right now, with the valuation of a human. Yeah. I saw something very disturbing on the news. There's so much disturbing on the news, but the mother of the shooter was interviewed by a local TV station, and they asked, well, why do you think he did it? And one of our answers was to get closer to the children. And all I could think about was child sacrifice. I'm not sure what she really meant by that. But like you say, we don't do that. 
we don't we have a very interesting relationship with in our tradition and i i mean that as in not just something that lives in text i mean our relationship with numbers was utterly changed forever in the moments of the holocaust as well like our relationship to numbers has a very deep 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 history today is the 41st day of the omer we count numbers because numbers also give us some level of holiness i was doing an uh, uh a funeral intake yesterday in which the grandson and i related to each other because both of us from our grandmothers were called he was called lucky number seven i was called number 10 and she called my grandma called me number 10 and for some reason that was the most loving thing i felt such deep love by being called number 10 as if her way of saying like 10 i'm still not losing track of right like that you have your own special place even as number 10 and yet there are other moments in which numbers completely take us away from a human depth of interaction reading this material this week i can't help but feel like it's the wrong direction to ever assess a value for a promise for a hope for a projection i still think we're on the right page when it comes to the loss of life because i think that's a different conversation i think that has to do with making sure that one has a chance to wake up the next day and not feel buried but this is different and i must be honest i have a hard time not exclusively thinking about the price that we have now paid in this country with all the lives lost but even more so with the loss of children it says right here that they're not worth the same amount as an adult and yet does it really say that or or is this really about people giving based on what their ability to come up with money is about i mean does this say the child really is worth less well, I, I didn't read it that way let's walk through it a male from a male again let's go back through it a male from 20 to 60 is worth 50. A male from 5 to 20 is worth 20. And a male from 1 month to 5 is worth 5. And a male 60 and over is worth 15. Does it say worth? I guess it says the equivalent of a human being. That's the problem here. Well, did, I'm not it, does the Hebrew be... say worth? Does it really imply that that is what they are worth? I mean, it could be. It could be that it's terrible, but... I, I can repeat the question as well. And... If you think that the the father is the breadwinner, which, you know, this is such a sexist piece and an ageist piece, it's unbelievable, as typical. But um, but if the father is the breadwinner, then how can he pay for each child to vow? You know, so I think it's just sexist and ageist as it is. Okay, but, and I respect that, but let's hold that. But is the, but who who is who is who's paying the shekels? Is it, for example, if you have a male between twenty and sixty making a vow, do they pay fifty shekels? Only if they're vowing their own life. If they're vowing their kid's life, they're going to pay less shekel. Right, right, because they have a lot of kids. So is the so who can who can make a vow? Uh, so now we're getting into a different territory that we're actually not even addressing here in Leviticus 27, but any member 
of the community who is counted is eligible to make those. So would that include a male one month to five years? You know, it's an interesting question. And again, next week, we're going to see that one month olds get assigned jobs sometimes. And we go, but, but that's an interesting question. I think and, and, generally we're talking about the male. And so what's there? But if that's the case, then what, I mean, what agency do they have to make a vow? What agency do any of the Israelites who are not fluent in the ways of the divine because they are not the Levites, what agency do any of them have to actually know the weight of the vow they're taking? Again, the, the Levites, the priests, are supposed to be safeguarding this experience. And again, I don't, I'm, I'm torn about the sexist and ageist nature of this because I'll also tell you, one thing that I tell every couple that I work with now, get life insurance, especially when they're in their 20s. I say, get a long policy because every year that they wait, it's going to go up. It's going to change valuations. Now, again, I understand a computer, an algorithm, a system has all structured this to be said, but are we any more comfortable with the valuation of life that happens when we take life insurance policy? How do we know what someone's capable of? Look at all these tech entrepreneurs who can't even afford more than a zip up. And then they turn it into a lifestyle later. But the reality is they were working out of the garage in a zip up hoodie. And that's what they were because they didn't have any other money. They would have been completely wrong about assessing their value. It cuts short any capability of us to actually enact our B'Tselem Elohim, actually act in a way that's reflective of God if we're preemptively giving a value to the person. And again, I know there's a system to it. I agree with you. It's a bit of keeping the lights on. You want these vows, come and give them. And I don't even think it should be seen in a, in a, in a grotesque way in that sense. But the question is, why do we start with such clear rules based on age and gender? Yes, but within the age and gender, there's equalities, which is interesting. So even though okay. it says men from 20 to 60, all men, not the famous ones and the unfamous ones or the rich ones or the poor ones are treated differently. Yes, age and gender, which I guess at that time were how people majorly got distinguished. But within the age there and within the gender, it doesn't say the pretty ones, you know, with, with, with no, the handsome ones right. with men or the pretty ones with women are worth X and the ones who have a disability are Y. It doesn't distinguish mentally between those people. So there is, to no, some extent, right. a degree of egalitarianism. This may just be, and I'm really trying to be kind to the text, this may just be a reflection of the times and the culture, the culture of the times. But the equality piece of it is kind of stunning when you think about it. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's take that thread all the way to the reality that we have that morality and values are uh, evolving. That morality and value evolves over time. And so if we take that notion that morality and value evolves over time, then we may have a situation in which at this moment it was an incredibly ethical piece of text. And in some ways you could even call it brave that it was willing to put down on paper numbers so that no one would feel anything but transparency when it came to the way they were interacting with the divine. Right? There is a there is a world in which by saying these things, full transparency, 
And now the choice is yours, how you're going to go through it. We're not going to change it on you. There isn't going to be this fluctuating market value. This is just what it is. So there is a world in which that is really a beautiful way of reducing other inequalities by just naming these limitations and then following from inside of them. In the in the commentary that's in the that's Haim, it says the the custom of promising one's value in silver to the sanctuary goes back to the actual dedication of oneself or one's child to temple service. So it seems that this is simply an analog of people offering themselves or people related to them. Yes, yeah, the compensatory to, value of the Nazarites. Well, but to temple service. Correct. So a, a 20 to 60-year-old male is going to be, for example, okay, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm done with tending the flocks. I'm going to go work at the temple. Well, they're worth a lot to the temple because, okay, you could do gardening. You can, you know, make bricks. You can, you can do yeah. a lot of stuff. Uh, a child is not worth very much. Okay. So what are, what are we going to do with the kid? We have to feed it for the next 20 years. So they are worth less to the people running the temple, running the sanctuary. Okay. So maybe that's where the differentiation in value comes from. So now we're at a point in which we're finding an ethical mm-hmm. and fair perspective to value and a space in which if you understand it's current time ethics is actually a very ethical space in which money makes no difference. Status makes no difference. Here are the differences, the things you have no control over, your age and your gender. Those are the differences. Here's the market value we've put to it. But anything else inside of that number, anything else inside of that range is equal. Let's say we can go all the way with that. And by the way, do I have a hand raised right now or is that stretching? No, that's okay. Not to worry. (laughs) Daniel, I, I'm really sympathetic to Richard's uh, analysis and I'm rethinking this because if you start from the viewpoint that we're all engaged or should be engaged in the common good, and then you look at this and say, the priests are the ones that sort of administer the protocols to make sure that our society functions. Charitably, it says, I'm only going to raise money to function as a society. I'm not going to profit by this. And then it makes sense that you look at the population and say, who has the ability to pay? Who's productive? You can't get an infant to pay more than a 20 to 60-year-old. That's the best interpretation. Sadly, I still think there's a venality to the priests that are looking at this and saying, hey, this is my livelihood, and you got to pay up. So maybe that's enough for today. I'm just not sure. Well, so I'm going to share with you two different pieces of perspective. And being that this is a podcast, one of these is ludicrous, but I'm still going to share it anyways, in that this actually is one of the most interesting conversations when it comes to interfaith dialogue between clergy. Clergy are compensated in very different ways depending on their tradition and their denomination and everything else. And a lot of people who might come from, 
If you look at the Catholic Church, for instance, the compensation structure is completely different because they have no property, no assets. Everything is provided for the priest. And then you come across to a synagogue. We might have a movement, but we don't have a unified body. We have to make sure that each institution can function and thrive, in which case the uncomfortable conversation of the cost of having your clergy here becomes a real conversation. And there are people who are devastatedly uncomfortable with this because they don't want to think about numbers and business when it comes to their clergy. And there's other people who see it as a tangible act of love. Are we providing for our clergy in a way that allow them to live in a comfortable and fair in this community? And I'm not saying right or wrong answers to it. Believe me, I have enough left of my contract that this is not some type of secret forgetting ploy, but there is a truth to that. It all depends on that perspective. There is a world in which the priests are trying to make sure that their infrastructure will last. You can see it as greed, and I don't blame you for it, or you can see it as every other one of these professions is going to have valuation to it. If you're, if you do medicine, it's going to be for this. If you are, uh, uh, you know, if you work inside of metals or you're a carpenter, there's going to be a valuation to all of these products. And here in the temple, they still have families. They, they still have lives. So we actually almost are obligated to help these people figure out a system in which they also can live because otherwise it's going to create an even worse disparity in their culture. Also, they were considered to be uh, helping to protect the entire society because the idea of what they were doing at the temple was supposed to help God yeah, they were in dwell in their the whole midst, society. Of the whole, whether somebody felt religious or not religious or like them or didn't like them, they provided kind of like police or, or firemen. They provided a service. They were the public every, servants. They, right. Yeah. They, they, to everybody, public religious servants. No, at the time they are the public servants because religion is the, it's, it's the logic of the society. Today, you live and do different pieces. You have to wrestle or find the connection between faith and religion and science and the, the societal agreement of norms and truths. All these things are separate and you have to navigate and flow with them. This was society, period. This was logic. This was science. This was rationale. This was all of it. So you gave a vow because if I don't give a vow, it's not going to happen. My relationship with God is important. If I don't have that relationship with God, I'm not going to get what I need for my family. The logic was you prayed and praying was part of you doing your job to protect your family. So they truly were the public servants of the temple period. Which is part of why Judaism has become a religion of we and not of me. And it is a, it, it, it is a characteristic that... Uh, you know, we, we live in an age where the me is taking power over the we, and where a lot of people are questioning, is there a we? Why, why, should, I, why should I pay taxes, you know, to, to save somebody else's house? Why should I pay taxes, you know, to have a traffic light? Who wants traffic lights anyway? And the concept here is that there is a we, that there is a structure and that people need to give according to some extent to their ability to pay, which in this case was related to age and gender. But they already had that, and I agree, because they had the half-shekel tax and all kinds of other things already towards the temple. Agreed. 
You got a couple of microphone passes. Something very interesting with the Catholic Church that I've observed in Mexico is that instead of just a vow that's made for money, they make what are called milagros, little silver pieces. If they, if their arm is bad or their leg is bad, they'll have a silver carving of a leg or an arm or whatever is wrong. A, a cow, even if their crops are bad, they'll have a silver picture of, uh, of crops. They make a contribution to the church with that, but they pin it up at the back of the church. And in many rural churches in Mexico, you can go in and see the back of the church covered with these silver milagros, and they're all vows that are visible. You know, you mentioned uh, life insurance before, and it seems to me that that is a context in which uh, this can be uh, um, really understood uh, quite readily, because if you buy life insurance, for example, it varies on what size policy you're going to be you're going to buy, what you'll what will uh, life will be. Uh, what the payout will be for a life. But there's no inherent prediction involved in that in terms of what the life is worth in some larger sense or in some other context. It's simply a, a kind of contract. It's a way of saying, I value my vow um, to this extent. This is, uh, this is how important it is to me. Sorry, that, that that's not entirely correct in the sense that uh, from an underwriting point of view, you may want to be insured for for $10 million, but if you're only making $20,000 a year, you're not going to get an insurance policy for $10 million. So, it, so it's not, so it's not a, a simple contract in the sense of there's going to be a value for the insurance based on the actuarial value that are calculated. Uh, but how much the company would be willing to write the policy for is to some extent a matter of underwriting. How much risk is it right. to take on? And that risk is going both your your health and your economics and your prospects. No, I think the print, the, as you said, it doesn't change the principle, but it, it does go back to a clarity that I think Bert was trying to give before as well, which is there might be some discomfort or even ugliness in your first read but sometimes those things are actually put in as as the container as the limitations as the 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 structure and then from inside that structure is where you actually look into the ethics and the values that they hold so here's i appreciate all of that because I, I I want to find a way in which this text is being holy and ethical and i do think from those perspectives it really is here is the kicker Here's why I can't get my mind off of what happened at Robb Elementary. Because we're talking about vows. We're talking about a promise to God, which there is nothing larger than. And so there's this rabbi, you might have seen this on the internet. His name is is Mark Asher Goodman, and he tweeted this tweet that has gone uh, pretty viral, in which he says, in Judaism, if you say a prayer over something and then fail to do the requisite action that it follows, like blessing bread and not eating it, which is something that you'll often see when they say to say hamotzi, if you look over at the rabbi, you'll often see them not say every word if they don't have challah right there. Or you'll see on a Friday night, if we've said it, um, I was drumming last week and Rabbi Amy literally took the piece of challah and kept it in front of my face until I ate it because I had said the blessing. If you say the blessing of challah and you don't eat it, it's a bracha lavatla, right? It's a sinful act. 
So now let's go to the first thing we hear every time there is an incident of true gun violence in this country. What starts going throughout everyone? Pray for them, our prayers are Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Pray for them. Our thoughts and prayers go to the family. However, if you make a vow, put aside the valuation that has clearly made some of us uncomfortable. If you make a vow with zero intention of following through with actual change, it's a sinful act. It's the worst kind of thought and prayer. And I know that makes so many of us uncomfortable because, quite frankly, when we as a clergy put out the letter that you read just a couple days ago, we truly are holding them in our hearts. But if there is no follow-up action as a country, as individuals, if we don't take even the smallest of steps to be towards, to work towards a solution that will reduce the number of lives that have been lost to them, then we are actually in the breaking of a vow. And not even worse, in the sinful act of pretending that something was going to be Last week's Torah portion pointed out in Bihar, which is often connected to Buhu Kotai, that the rabbis are so serious about the idea of not deceiving that they don't even want you to go into a store and walk around pretending you're going to buy something. Even further, because some of us have done it, you go into the store and you say, how much is this? Because as soon as they say the number, you say, it's more than I was looking to spend. The rabbis actually say, that's even worse. Because if someone else is in there and overhears it, now they're like, ooh, is that too expensive? And they don't buy it either. There are so many spots in here where intentionality and integrity are key. This has to be the most important version of that. If you're going to bring God into the conversation, that's what this is really about. If you're going to bring God into the conversation, you better be ready to pony up with the value that we've agreed to. A promise is a promise. A vow is a vow. A blessing is a blessing. If you say our hearts, our thoughts and prayers go out to the, uh, you know, I pray to God that this not happen again. You brought God into this. What are you going to do with it? I started with an all-powerful, all-knowing God. I like to call that God, and some of you have heard me say it before, the divine partner. Only a partner to every person on earth would be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, because that's the only way you could truly hold partnerships with everyone who is looking for their partner. We all know that. We're all in partnerships of some kind. It is exhausting as is. Imagine God's ability to be with everyone. If we invoke God's name, if we say thoughts in prayer, now it's our part of the partnership to do something. And if we don't, You can be as mad as you want about age and sex when it comes to making a vow. But if you're not prepared to be God's partner when we actually say the words, it doesn't matter. Daniel, Daniel, that is just a beautiful statement. And I really wonder why we haven't heard clergy in this country say exactly the same thing to Ted Cruz. You know... About 10 minutes ago, I found myself, again, not prepared to do so, talking about the compensation of clergy. I think this world is complicated, and I think it is really hard, even when we believe in something fervently. And, and let me tell you, I, I did not write that first tweet. I was inspired by what, what Rabbi Goodman wrote. 
it is a really scary world out there in which we're often afraid that the things we say that might follow our hearts might still be really scrutinized, misunderstood, reflected wrong. And, and, and that's uh, scary. But I got to tell you, when I was meeting with the teens on Tuesday night, and it was Tuesday that this happened, I realized that when I was in high school, and again, I know that I was in high school at a very different time than everyone studying here right now. The only incident that I was thinking about of violence was Columbine, and it was enough that it shook the entire country. These kids can just put their hand into a bag and pull out a marble with the name of some shooting. We're past the point of being afraid of it, and we have to really be that divine partner to God. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck saying thoughts and prayers again at the next broken promise, and it's not going to matter what truth we can extract from our text.